Good morning, church. My name's Christina. I'm one of the deacons here at Church in the Square. Hear this scripture reading from Romans 14, 16, verses 16 through 19. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Christina. Thank you, band. Y'all may be seated. Um, and if you have not yet already, please open up to Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14, again, verses 16 through 19 will be our primary text. My name is Jason. I serve as one of the elders uh, here. And as a reminder, we've got a couple more uh, weeks this week and next in Romans, and we'll take a little break in May and then through the summer. Uh, but by God's grace, we will be finishing this uh, great letter this year um, after that break. So I don't know, I already kind of miss it, but maybe that's just me. That's okay. Um, though as we've been navigating this, uh, this text for the past number of years, it, it strikes me that one of the things that's really easy to miss when you navigate a letter kind of the way, or any uh, amount of scripture the way that we have been, which is essentially line by line um, over a long period of time, it's really easy to miss the big picture. It's really easy, uh, in other words, to miss the forest for the trees, if you will. Um, and yet what we should keep in mind is that Christianity is not a religion of simply having lists and laws and lessons, nor is it sort of in a more modern sense, a, a spirituality that is merely about connection and mystery. At the end of the day, the big picture, fundamentally, Christianity is a story. It's a story that is easy to miss as we slowly traverse a letter like Romans. Uh, it's a story that began even before time existed, where God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, what we call the Trinity, the full expression of who God is, was perfectly harmonious, perfectly and wonderfully glorious, or we might say perfectly fine. He, he needed nothing and needed no one. He was not incomplete. He was whole and he was wonderful. And yet out of love, he creates this world out of harmony and glory. Namely, he creates human beings to reflect that image, to reflect who he is and what he is like, to enjoy one another and him forever. Sin, of course, here comes the story, devastates all of this, sets all of the world off of its axis, including our own souls, and that beauty and tranquility is met with disorder and chaos and injustice and death. All of these things begin to lay hold of God's world. And as the brokenness begins to unfold, God's, God's people begin to get this picture, this, this vision, if you will, from prophets and writers and God's people uh, of, of this figure, of this idea of reclaiming harmony, of reclaiming glory that sin has corrupted and lost. And all of that vision, that big picture, begins to center on this king, on this one particular figure who, through time, this new king would be revealed to be specifically the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And through his life and death and resurrection, he begins to reverse the curse of sin and the hearts of men and women and transforms us from the inside out, that, that that harmony and that peace would be recaptured. And through his healing work, in an, it happens in some respects in a very instant effect. As soon as Jesus rises from the dead, 
millions and countless things are instantly true that were not previously true. And yet, the story continues where we're continuing to see the fullness of that expression begin to lay hold. So there's this idea that it is instant, and yet it is also progressive, meaning that Jesus has this immediate impact, and yet it is taking all the way until his second coming for the fullness of what he has accomplished to be fully realized, and the destruction of sin and death itself to be finally uh, achieved. In fact, one day he promises that that will happen, that one day all of the harmony and all of the glory will be completely restored. All of the destruction, all of the brokenness, or as uh, Tolkien put it, the writer of The Lord of the Rings, everything sad will be made untrue. That's what he's promised us. That's the story. And in many ways, at the end of the day, no matter what we talk about, that's always what we're talking about, right? I think it's quite beautiful that we gather together every single week to talk about the exact same story, just at different places with different lessons along the way. But it's always about that story from beginning to end. And so it's really easy to overlook, right? It's always easy to overlook the most fundamental and obvious things. We don't think about breathing usually, but it is so fundamental to who we are, we better keep doing it, right? It's so fundamental to who we are, we have to continue to make sure we're not missing the forest for the trees. I think this is what Paul's going to help us do today. I think he's going to invite us, he invites his readers to sort of step back and to behold the entire forest or to remember the whole story. See, to this day, Jewish people actually have a way of summarizing this story in everyday greetings and exchange. They sim- in one word, they say shalom. And in that single word, they are summarizing the entire story with one another. They are holding that story in their hearts, if you will. You see, God enjoyed shalom before the beginning, the beginning before the beginning. And when he creates, he creates shalom, its utter peace and beauty in the garden. And what does sin destroy? Sin destroys shalom. And what does Jesus promise to restore? Shalom. You see, the whole story is about shalom. And it doesn't translate very well into English, as few things from ancient Hebrew do. But in particular, this word, it's often translated simply as peace. But it means so much more than that. It means wholeness. It means completeness. It it lacks nothing. It is prosperity. It is well-being. It's security. This word really summarizes our story well, and I think it summarizes something else really well, what you and I are really longing for. No matter what we're doing, no matter what job we take, no matter what reason we came to this city, no matter the reason you came to this church or even visiting this church today, we are all searching for shalom to be restored. This is our story. This is our deepest longing. Don't you want some peace? I mean, in the middle of this world and in all of our situations, that's what we want. We want security. We want well-being. We want peace. Christians that are invited to live in this tension, this tension that we realize that in Christ we have peace, and yet we live in this world where we desperately long for that peace to lay hold of our existence and our lives even more. So we have this peace with God instantly, and yet we're also invited to be makers or cultivators of peace. We're even called peacemakers. So in, in God we have shalom from the moment we believe in who Jesus is and what he's accomplished. You have peace. And yet throughout our lives, whether it's in the school system, whether it's in your work, whether it's in your own family, we're meant to be people who make peace. So it is a process, and yet it also is not. It's also immediate. 
And so that's what I want to talk about today. I'd, I'd like to talk about peace, and I want to talk particularly what does it mean to have peace while at the same time cultivating and making peace? What does it look like to live in this tension of knowing that I have peace, but I don't feel like it? right? Have you been there where I know the truth, I've read the scripture, I got that text from a friend, I know you're praying for me, but I'm not experiencing that. I'm not living in that peace right now, in my marriage, in my family, in my work, in my calling, maybe even the place I live and where I know I want to live or be or the kind of life I want to have, right? Are you tracking with me that I know I have peace, but what does it look like to live with that peace? And I want to do that by looking at peace from three different vantage points as sort of like launched from this text that Paul gives us. I want to talk about uh, cosmic peace, that is our peace with God first, start there, and then we'll look at personal peace, peace within myself or peace with myself, uh, and then lastly we'll look outward, we'll look at peace universally or peace uh, with others. So cosmic peace, personal peace, and universal peace, and let's pray and ask for God's help to understand this more fully. Heavenly Father, it's clear this is what we need. We need peace. We need shalom to be restored. And so we thank you for this great story that you are telling over us, even through us, through the work of your son. And so we just pray uh, today that you'd help us to understand from your word, your timeless, beautiful, uh, and inerrant truth, how it is that you've settled our souls, how it is that you're bringing wholeness and completeness, shalom to this world. So give us eyes to see and ears to hear we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So one of the things that we realize, or hopefully have realized to this point in Rome, is there's not a lot of peace um, experientially. There's a lot of tension. There's a lot of things going on in people's hearts. There's a lot of things going on in uh, the community, in the church community. And so Paul has been talking around this subject of having freedom, freedom to disagree, freedom to see secondary issues differently, which at first blush does not lead to a lot of peaceful kumbaya kind of moments with the church, it leads to a lot of tension and a lot of judgment. See, there's freedom to disagree on these matters of conscience, but that's easier said than done, right? It's easy. It feels nice to say, we're free to disagree, but then you're sitting in their living room and you go, I don't understand you. Like, why are you this way, <laughs> right? You start to actually put flesh on disagreement. It's a lot harder to really conceptualize how it is this happens. And so Paul is being honest with the church in Rome, as he is in places like in Corinth and also in Ephesus. There's a lot of tension. There's a lot of conflict that needs to be addressed, particularly about matters of food and holidays. And it's always about something that's trite, right? It's almost never about something that is truly fundamental to our existence. It's usually like, I don't like that you eat meat, and I've, I'm not giving up my, my bacon, right? I, we're there, we're, that's where the tension usually begins to surface. And so having addressed this, what Paul wants us to do now is step back. He wants us to step back and look at the big picture, not miss the forest for the trees, and to remember our story. And so here's how he puts it. Look at verse 16 through 17 in Romans chapter 14. He says, so do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. In other words, what's he saying? Would you please move on to the things that are important? Would you stop bickering about who celebrates what days and makes them special? Would you move on to righteousness and to peace and to joy? 
See, this is the important lesson. He wants these readers to understand. He wants us to understand, and by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that Christianity is not about your lists and your laws and your lessons. It's, it's, not, it's not a religion in that way, and it's not a spirituality. It's simply about our connection and mystery. It's a story. It's a story of the kingdom of God. It's a story of God restoring shalom. It's a story about peace. Church, isn't it true that we have made Christianity about a lot of things that Jesus never was about? That he, was never, he never instructed us to be about those things, certainly not primary. And so at the core of Christianity, what Paul is reminding us and what the scriptures from beginning to end draw us to embody is that it is a story about God reclaiming shalom, reclaiming peace. Now, the Bible talks about peace, as we've discussed in a number of different ways, in a multifaceted way, which is really encouraging because we long for peace in a lot of different kinds of ways. It's never in a one, one sort of perspective or in one, one sort of layer. There are many layers to our longing for peace. And the entire story of Shalom begins to center on a particular person in the Jewish imagination, particularly the Messiah, or they also called the Anointed One. And the prophet Isaiah was instrumental in shaping this imagination about the Messiah, and especially helping people understand that everything that God promised, particularly in relationship with peace, was going to center through this one that God was going to send to his people. And so around Christmas time, we often read from Isaiah chapter 9, when, when Isaiah calls this Messiah the prince of what? Peace. The prince of shalom, the one who owns and rules and reigns with shalom. And he says in Isaiah 9, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Do this. Now, this is really interesting because when we conceive of a kingdom advancing and expanding, we never think the mechanism, the way in which that's going to happen is peace. We think it's going to happen the opposite way. This is, in fact, what the world is in conflict about right now, that war is the thing that is extending boundaries, that war is the thing that expands kingdoms, that conflict expands kingdoms. But Isaiah is saying there's a king who's going to come whose kingdom is going to expand through peace. We don't have a category for that. A kingdom expanding through peace, it's unthinkable. But the Messiah's kingdom will grow just this way, by this never-ending shalom. The Messiah will bring holistic and lasting peace. He's going to bring shalom. So it's noteworthy then that when Jesus arrives, when he is born, the angels interrupt shepherds just minding their own business. And what do they proclaim over all of these shepherds? Glory to God in the highest and on earth what? Peace. Shalom. In other words, here it comes. Here it comes. The one that Isaiah promised about the Prince of Peace is now coming, and the way we're going to let you know that this is all connected to the story is to bring up shalom, to bring up peace, and those with whom he is pleased. Pleased. See, Jesus comes, and he brings shalom with him. He begins to extend his kingdom. Yet this peace often does not lead to perhaps what we would have expected, to an earthly kingdom of tranquility and wholeness and victory. Instead, it leads to his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. And this is something that we have to contend with in the big story. How does that fit in? The one who said he's going to bring peace is a victim to the sword, is victim to death, is one who does not then establish a kingdom that begins to extend its boundaries through peace, but actually the king dies and he leaves earth. Well, Jesus anticipated this. 
He anticipated this question in John chapter 14. It's an extended lesson, John 14 is, on peace. He's addressing a kind of turmoil, if you will, or hostility that his disciples were facing within themselves and with each other, specifically about his coming departure. None of his disciples were down with his plan. None of them (laughs) were like, this is a really great idea for you to die and supposedly rise from the dead. Almost every time Jesus brings up his death and resurrection, they start arguing. There's conflict. They don't get it. They don't have a category for this. Just as much as you and I would not have a category if we go, all right, here's the plan, right? We just wouldn't. We wouldn't think that's a really good idea. And so Jesus is preparing them for them. He confronts them by saying that as he departs, who's he going to leave behind? His spirit. His spirit is going to come, and in a paradoxical way, we don't have time for this today, but in a paradoxical way, he is actually more present with his people because he leaves than he even was when he was here because he sent his, his Holy Spirit. And this is what he was preparing them for, to fill them and empower them, to embody his teaching. And so he says in John 14, 27, what does he leave? Peace I leave with you. Peace, shalom I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. I got you. I'm leaving you with peace. Jesus is leaving, He's going to go to the Father. He's going to go to the Heavenly Father to be with his Father whom he had been with in eternity past. And the world, though, that he leaves behind is still in chaos, right? Not every problem is solved. Not not every argument has been settled. Countries are still led by corrupt and hostile leadership. He still sees people who are in need of experiencing all types of burdens and anxieties and fears within themselves that need to be relieved. And Jesus leaves This doesn't look like the story that we promised. And I think that's because when we think about peace and our longing for peace, we almost never think about cosmic peace. We almost always think about it experientially. But this is what Jesus is speaking about. He's talking about cosmic peace. Scriptures make it plain that cosmic peace is actually our central and greatest need. With all the various hostilities that we face in our human existence, Jesus begins not with settling every physical, invisible hostility. He starts with our cosmic need for peace. Jesus could leave peace with his earliest followers because he had done something on the cross. He had cosmically purchased our peace. See, back in Romans chapter 5, if you would please turn there with me, just back to the left, uh, nine chapters. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, Paul summarizes exactly what it is that Jesus has accomplished by dying on the cross at a cosmic level as it relates to our relationship with God. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that our sufferings produce endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So because of sin, church, we have hostility. It is not good between us and God. There is cosmic tension. There is cosmic conflict. Because of our sin, there's hostility between humanity and God, between me and God, between you and God. And that is your greatest issue. That is my greatest issue. (laughs) That is our collective. That is the worst problem you could possibly have. I don't care what tension you face at work, in your relationships. That's bigger 
That's more of a problem. It's what the scriptures teach us. This is our great problem. Our greatest need then is what? Peace with God. Peace with God. And Paul is saying then, in Christ, here in Romans 5, the hostility between humanity and God has been appeased. In other words, your greatest issue has been swallowed up in shalom already. The greatest problem you could ever face has already been met by the matchless peace of the Prince of Peace. Think about that. Your greatest need has been met. Your greatest issue has been solved. Your greatest problem has already been met by the matchless, perfect response of a loving Savior. And you have peace. You guys, I get, I get lost in so many other problems. I don't know about you. <laughs> and I think so many other things like, God, this is the biggest issue. If you do this in my life, if we finally, whatever, then everything. And he's like, yo, would you, how easily we forget that our greatest issue ever is the need for peace with God. And the greatest gift that we have been given is you have peace with God. Stated differently, sin then disrupted shalom that humanity enjoyed with God in the garden. That's the greatest thing that sin ever stole, was peace with God. And Jesus' first order of business through his life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension was retrieving peace between humanity and God. Because of Jesus, your greatest need has already been met. Now, there is much more that the church is about and the implications that sort of flow out of that. But my brothers and sisters, my friends, if you have not received peace with God, then no other peace is ultimately possible. Many of us are spinning our wheels trying to make peace happen on our own, but we have never actually gone to the Lord in our hearts and said, Lord, there is still conflict between us and I need to believe in your son, that he totally, completely, and fully has established shalom between me and you. Throughout the centuries, Christians have offered different prayers and responses. At the end of the day, you need to bow the knee to that reality, that your greatest need is hostility between you and God, and the greatest gift you have been given is peace with God. This is what makes us Christians. This is what makes us brothers and sisters. This is what makes us a church. This is what makes us a community. Not because we like each other, because let's be honest, sometimes we can sort of give or take one another, right? I know you could give or take me sometimes. I'm just saying it might go both ways. I don't know. But this is where we line up. This is what it means to be us. It means to acknowledge that ultimately our greatest need has been swallowed up in the shalom of Jesus Christ. Now, I, I'm belaboring this point and making sure that we get it because if we don't know we have peace with God, you will never have peace within yourself. You will never have peace with your brothers and sisters because all shalom flows out of that shalom. All peace flows out of that peace. And so, may I be so bold, perhaps one of the reasons you're having a hard time seeing yourself as a Christian and living in Christian relationships with your brothers and sisters is because you are not a Christian. That is not a judgment on you. That is simply to say that our peace begins with God and it flows out from there. 
And so therefore, when we confess our sin, we can know that he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why? Because Jesus has purchased peace between you and the Heavenly Father. This is cosmic peace that makes personal and universal peace possible. You see, every longing for peace begins with our soul's ache to retrieve shalom between you and the God of the universe. This is precisely why peace is a process yet it's also something that you have immediately. See, the instant we have peace with God through faith, through faith, it is an instant, immediate reality, but it also gives you a, a vision, a framework, if you will, a power of how we long for and desire and need to see peace expressed everywhere else. See, Christianity is not a religion with lists and lessons and laws, not simply a spirituality that is about connecting to some mysterious divine. Fundamentally, Christianity is this story. It's a story about God's kingdom. It's a story about peace. In some ways, then, cosmic peace has been the thing that Paul has been repeating throughout Romans chapter 14. After all, all this bickering and this judgment that's going back and forth between God's people in Rome is a product which says that you're not settled in this idea that you have peace with God. Therefore, you don't have it with one another. It's all coming from fear. It's coming from anxiety. It's coming from a heart that is not anchored in the peace that we have with God. This, I think, is the greatest obstacle for us as Christians when it comes to enjoying personal peace. Jesus has achieved something at a cosmic level that by his spirit he is working out in our hearts personally. Yet we're often tempted, I think, to keep trying to create peace in our life without being anchored in the peace that we have with God. We're trying to make it happen in some other way and some other power and some other measures. So what's that look like? What's it look like? How do we live with peace in our souls? Knowing that we have peace with God, what does it look like to believe and live that out? Well, since we're in Romans chapter 5, I think it's a good place to survey a little bit more of the canvas here that Paul is, a uh, picture that Paul is painting. See, notice how peace with God, that cosmic peace, transforms our outlook of ourselves, both presently and in the future. That, that's the personal aspect. Look again at verses 3 and 5. 3 and 5 in Romans chapter 5. Paul has the audacity to say that we can rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts. You see, ultimately, what, he's, what is he saying? That what is cosmically true can become personally true. That what is cosmically true can become personally true. See, it changes the way I see and know myself. Peace with God changes the way that I see and understand my own, have my own self-concept. Not only so, but it shifts the way I even look into the future. Look at verse 2, the second half of it. We rejoice in the hope of glory, of the glory of God. That's a, that's a future, a long-term vision of shalom being fully restored. So personal peace, then, is all about how we see ourselves, our identity, and our spiritual status. And church, we're not very good at this because we don't begin with cosmic peace. See, cosmic peace is about my changed status before God. You are at peace with God. It's not a feeling. It's not an opinion. It's what the scriptures say about who you are and who I am in Christ. You are at peace with him. There's no beef between you and the, the Lord of the universe. It's amazing, right? Personal peace, then, is about a transformed vision of myself in light of that truth. In light of there being peace between me and the Heavenly Father, I can know peace within myself. You can be at peace within yourself, Paul says, even as you suffer. Even as you suffer and on through eternity. And this is not simply some 
some spiritual or mental gymnastics that Paul is saying, that you can like think good thoughts while the world is falling apart. That's not what he's saying. It's not just about positive thinking. It's about being anchored in a reality that is truer than your suffering. It's about being solidified in something that is more solid than your physical pain that you may be enduring. It's standing with peace in Christ. But let's be honest, we need a lot of healing in this. We need some transformation to take place. I know I do because I often don't go there. Honestly, I spent a lot of this week feeling this sort of bifurcation, this brokenness, this like, I didn't feel like myself in many different times this week. I didn't feel at peace. And it's always like my wife or one of the elders or even like hearing them say something that like recently or my group, it's like, of course I don't feel peace the week that we are going to teach on peace. Of course. But it takes me like four days to go, oh, oh, you mean I got to live this, not just talk about it? That's so frustrating. It's nice when you just have lessons for other people that they need to learn. God, can you give me some of those, please? I, feel, I felt like that a lot this week. Like I'm looking at the scriptures and going, there is this peace, but there's a difference between what I know and what I feel often. What I know to be true, what I read in the scriptures, and what I experience in my life. In fact, I don't think I was thinking much about the peace of God at all. That doesn't feel like the thing I really need. I just want to feel better. I don't really need like some theological reminder right? That's, that's what my soul is telling me often, and that's not really true. See, our hearts are in conflict. We often don't feel personal peace and what Paul is writing about. Let, let's think back to what he's saying in Romans 14. See, there is this unsettledness in Rome. They're not living with peace personally. They have this peace. Paul, I mean, he's like nine chapters ago, you guys, I was telling you about this peace you have with God, and now you're bickering about food and holidays and all of this. Right? So he realizes that they're, they're getting lost in the trees. They're forgetting the story. And so he reminds them in chapter 14, verse 17. Turn back there if you haven't already. Romans 14, verse 17. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. It's not about the trees. It's about the forest. It's about the big picture, about righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. See, in Christ, we don't merely enjoy the kingdom of God. And it's not just an ethereal idea for some sort of moral framework, right? The, the kingdom of God is not just some random and big idea. You and I in Christ are members of the kingdom. You and I are kingdom people. This is our identity. You see, our status before God has changed, and therefore our status, who we are, has fundamentally changed. Peter pulls at this in one of his letters. He reminds a group of suffering Christians who are no doubt struggling to live at peace in the middle of their circumstances. They've been forced out of their homes, many of them refugees, learning a new language, learning new cultures and customs. They probably don't feel peace. And what does he say to them? One of the first things that he wants to remind them is who they are. He says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. He's not just giving them good positive thinking. He's not just giving them some spiritual gymnastics to do so that they feel better. He's reminding them what is, what is more true than your suffering is your identity in Christ. See, once you, were at, once you were not at peace and now you are, that's who you are. Therefore, our self-concept ought to change. But of course, that's a process. We need healing in this. We need healing in the way that we see and even know ourselves. See, cosmic peace has this instant element, and so does personal peace. You are fundamentally different. But it takes a long time to get to know yourself, doesn't it? 
One of my professors used to say that the Christian life is always about becoming who you already are. And I think that's really helpful. It's helpful to know that you are a son or daughter, no matter what, and yet your whole life you're going to spend remembering and learning what it means to just be a kid of the Heavenly Father, and so am I. Every single week we're learning to become who we are, and the same is true with our understanding of peace. It's a lifetime to learn this. See, one of the reasons that I think this is such a challenging thing and why we need healing is because the enemy loves for you to question cosmic peace. Loves for you to ignore cosmic peace when you're not feeling it personally. See, in other words, we're supposed to uh, allow our reality of this peace with God, if you will, to inform the way that we see ourselves. Yet often, we allow the way we see ourselves to tell us who God is. We do the exact opposite. So instead of looking to God and remembering who we are before Him and letting that inform the way that we see ourselves, we usually look within ourselves, find something that is off, and begin to blame God or look at God differently as a result of what we are experiencing personally. Does that make sense? It's the exact opposite. Instead of knowing what is cosmically true and allowing that to shape my personal reality, we look at our personal reality and let that tell us what is true ultimately. We're all growing in this. And just because we're growing, see, the evil one would love for you to think, because you're growing in this, you're wrong and you haven't arrived. But this is the nature of our spiritual formation. This is what learning is about. The evil one never lets you learn something. But Jesus is always a really great teacher. So how do we learn this? How do we learn to embrace this? This personal peace. Well, almost every time we think about personal peace, I think where our minds usually go is our circumstances and our feelings. And that's important to to state. We almost always think about our circumstance and our feelings. These, of course, are not unimportant, but they have nothing to do with your identity. Your circumstances and your feelings, really important, valuable, and valid, but they do not tell you who you are. These are not a threat to shalom. These have no bearing on your personhood and your status as a kingdom citizen or a son or a daughter of the heavenly father. That means that our attempts to reclaim personal peace without an anchor in our cosmic peace will always be attempts to change our circumstance and make us feel better. And we have to be really mindful of that. In other words, we start having this thought that peace, we think, is a new job. If I just change jobs, then I'll know peace. Peace, we think, is a new house. Peace is a bigger house. If I just had more space from my children, then everyone would be happy, right? Peace is the exact right school for my children because wherever they go to school as a preschooler, that is necessarily related to how much money they will make when they are 40 years old. And so I don't want to mess this up. It has to be right. Peace is a different diet. Peace is a different workout routine. Peace is more money. Peace is marriage. Peace is singleness. Peace is a different spouse. Peace is children. Peace is when children go to college, right? Peace is retirement. Peace is new friends. Peace is getting your whole church to eat meat and celebrate all of the exact right festivals that you and yours celebrate. Peace is a new church building that we finally no longer have to set up and tear down chairs ever again. Can I get an amen? That's what I tell myself. (laughs) That's what we tell ourselves. Because if peace is merely about my circumstances and my feelings, then all I need to do is change my circumstances so that I feel better. And I'm here to tell you today, the peace that you are offered is way better than that. Because as soon as those circumstances change, you know, right? You'll want to change them again. What if 
the problem is not your feelings or your circumstances. What if that ultimately the issue is, is you're not seeing yourself correctly? I'm not seeing myself correctly in light of the cosmic peace I have with God. I can know personal peace. See, brothers and sisters, Paul is helping us to see that when we have peace, merely based on our circumstances and emotions, we actually never have peace. We just get a little dopamine hit. We just get a little pause from whatever irritant that we've just avoided until the next one comes around. He's teaching us to be content. He's teaching us to know who we are. He's teaching us to see ourselves in light of how God sees us. See, it's because we forget the big story, right? We forget that we're kingdom people. And peace is not a feeling. Peace is not circumstantial. For those who are in Christ, peace is your reality. That's who you are. So if peace is about our personhood and not our circumstances, what does it look like to embrace this? What's it look like to live in this? Well, one of the ways I think that we can begin to live in this a little bit more is to ask different questions when we're not feeling it when you're having that week, when you're feeling your feelings, right? When you're looking at your circumstances and just go, if I could press reset, then everything would be okay. I think one of the things Dr. Lloyd-Jones helps us to rethink is to not just ask, how am I feeling or what will make me feel better, but what is true about me? Groups, we've got to get good at this. That when people are not having a great week, when they're really thinking about making some crazy changes, instead of saying, no, don't do that, it's to remind them who they are. It's really annoying it's really frustrating, but it ultimately settles your soul. See, a lot of times we're frustrated because ultimately I just want people to like validate me for doing what I want to do, right? It's people that slow me down and remind me who I am and treat me like a brother, like a sister who slow me down and say, what is true about me? What's true about the Lord? That's why Paul says we can rejoice in Romans chapter 5. Not because we feel good or comfortable or happy all the time or like all of our circumstances, but rather because the truth in suffering is that who you are is still his kid. Who you are is still his people. Who we are is still people at peace with God. Therefore, we can have peace within ourselves. To be sure, that sometimes takes time. It sometimes takes professional help. Sometimes it takes someone even outside of our group to walk us through that new identity and understanding of ourselves. We have a lot to unlearn about who we are. We have a lot of the old self, as Paul puts it elsewhere, to take off in order to put the new self on every single day. But the evil one is going to tell you, you should be there already, and that is a lie from the pit of hell. You and I are always becoming who we are more and more each day. You and I are always growing to learn to be more at peace within ourselves as we continue to unpack cosmic peace and ultimately understand that in every conversation with your circumstances and feelings, cosmic peace will have the last word. Cosmic peace will lead to personal peace. And I think that's the big part of what Paul is attempting to shape in his readers. He wants to shape in them a self-awareness, a self-concept in which that they see the truest thing about them is never threatened by their feelings and circumstances. It's at peace. It's whole. It's complete. Nothing is left undone. In many respects, you are whole in Christ, even though you are still learning to walk and to understand that wholeness. He wants us to step back, locate ourselves within the kingdom story, back within that kingdom identity, because the kingdom of God is not about what you eat, it's not about what school you go to. It's not about all the particular things of your job and finding the exact right thing that you should do with every ounce of your time. It's about, what does he say? Righteousness and peace and joy. 
that shalom, that wholeness. From this cosmic and personal peace, Paul pushes us to this third element, and we'll go quickly here, but to universal peace. We could say that the peace we have with God and within ourselves then begins, it can't help itself, it has to move outward. It longs to express itself everywhere that it goes. And so Paul says, verses 18 through 19, whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by man. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace, for mutual upbuilding. So our acceptance or peace with God leads us to peace with ourselves, and then this inward peace begins to make its way outward. This is why peaceful people are the best peacemakers, because something has happened within me that therefore is expressed outwardly. And Paul speaks about this also, and it's this instant reality of this universal peace, but he also writes to the church in Ephesus that it continues to need to be worked out. Ephesians chapter 2 is probably one of the most fundamental, most beautiful texts in Scripture that speaks about the universal peace, in other words, that peace that we have with one another because of the work of Christ. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, it said, He himself is our peace, who has has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law and the commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might create in himself one man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he preached, he came rather, and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple into the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You sense that tension of that already but not yet? You are the family of God. You are citizens, but the Lord is building this. He's building you together. See, we are a family. No matter our backgrounds, no matter what's happening in our worlds right now, what neighborhood is home or what kind of home is home, we are all a people of God, and yet we're going to take the rest of our lives to learn how to be brothers and sisters. We're going to take the rest of our lives to learn what does it mean to be people, a people of peace. But I love that what Paul says is not that peace is a concept or an idea. He says Jesus is our peace. Peace is a person. Peace is a person who dwells amongst his people and who leads and loves his people. He's talking about Jews and Gentiles and different ethnicities and cultural backgrounds. He's talking about two distinct and opposing peoples becoming a family because of our brother, our big brother Jesus and what he has accomplished for us. He's talking about two different stories being swept up into a single narrative. See, sin has fractured all of our relationships. That's the real thing driving a wedge between you and any of your relationships. Whenever there is tension, sin is somewhere in there. And what Jesus is saying is if he has dealt with sin, or rather what Paul is saying about Jesus, because he has dealt with sin, there is possibility for universal peace to instantly be achieved in Christ between brothers and sisters. And progressively we learn more and more about what that means. Now peace with our brothers and sisters is a brief aside before we close. I knew I was going to run out of time, but I think this is important. Peace does not mean reconciliation with everybody. You know what I'm saying? See, you and I are commanded to forgive one another, but we're not commanded to reconcile with everyone. 
Reconciliation is about restoring completely what was lost and retrieving the exact same relationship that we had before it was broken. On this side of Jesus' return, we're going to feel like peace hasn't been achieved with everyone because reconciliation may not be achieved with everyone. In other words, I may forgive someone, but I may not be able to go on vacation with them, right? Does that make sense? That I, I may have nothing between me and you, but that doesn't mean we're going to hang out every Friday night. We have peace, but we don't have full reconciliation. And I think it's really important to know that we can live in community with people we are not fully reconciled with. We can learn to be in community in different ways. We all aren't going to be each other's best friends, and that's okay. There's going to be all kinds of different relationships that we have, and we're still a family. What the evil one would say is if everyone doesn't love you and like you, and you don't love and like everyone else, then you're really not divided. That's not, or then you're really not one. You're divided. That's not true. We may not experience the fullness of shalom this side of Jesus returning, but that doesn't mean we haven't experienced shalom. That doesn't mean that Jesus has not achieved everything that he has promised he would achieve. It means that something is instantly true that we are learning to embrace more and more. We continue to pursue it, even though we may not fully achieve it in the ways that we desire. See, as much as Jesus has purchased our shalom, we are always going to long for more. And we are promised one day, though, that we will long no more. We will desire no more. We will only know wholeness and completeness and well-being when Jesus comes back. You see, peace with God is about healing from sin. Peace within ourselves is about healing from shame. Peace with one another is about healing from judgment and anger and competition and tribalism and radical individuality. And what Paul is teaching us is that in Jesus, you can be healed in all of those measures. You can have peace with God. You can have peace within yourself and we can enjoy peace with one another because he himself, Jesus, is our peace. Let's pray and thank him for it. Heavenly Father, We thank you that peace is not just something that we engineer by building the exact kind of life and experiences that we desire that will perhaps make us feel good, but ultimately, peace is our reality that we have because of Jesus. And so we thank you that by grace through faith, we have peace with you. That our greatest tension, our greatest issue has been met with the greatest gift that we have peace with you, our God. And so we thank you. As we learn this personal level of peace, would you help us to learn what it means to be at peace within ourselves, to be content, to rest in you, to abide in you, to know that peace is now who we are as your kingdom people and as your sons and daughters so that we can be a people who make peace in this world that desperately needs shalom. And so as we find our place in this story, would you help us to be those kinds of peacemakers? Would you also help us to know and long for a peace that ultimately will only be fulfilled when Jesus returns? Would you help us to live in that tension? Would you help us to learn to become who we are? Would you help us to learn the beauty of the immediate peace we have in Christ and yet the calling we have to continue to make peace in this life? We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.